Matthew chapter 16, we find Jesus in a place that he's never been before, as far as we can tell in the Gospels, and a place that he's never going to go back to, at least as far as we can see in the Gospels. <clears throat> a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this is one of those places, kind of like when he went to Tyre and Sidon, where learning a little bit about where exactly he went to can kind of help us decipher what's going on in this passage and um, determine some of the, why he says certain things that he says. Well, let's read through this passage together, um, and then we'll talk more about that. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, the scriptures say, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Lord, please give us wisdom. Help us to, to see what you want us to see here today. Help me to only say the things that I really need to say. There is much that can be said in this passage in so little time. But I pray, Lord, that you will broaden our appetite for your word and that you will help us to fill that appetite with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in verse 13, we see Jesus coming to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, if you, did anybody know where that was in Israel? <laughs> you know, it's not really a common place that we know about. I mean, we hear about Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and maybe some of us know where those, people, those places are in Israel. Uh, but Caesarea Philippi, if there's any place that we don't really know where that is, it might be this one. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was one of the northernmost districts in Israel, and it was situated at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, if you look at a geographical map of Israel, Mount Hermon is really the tippy top of Israel. Um, and Caesarea Philippi was a, a city built right at the base of Mount Hermon. Um, so it is the most, the northernmost boundary of Israel. It would have been, if you look on the on a map, it would be straight east of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, but Israel kind of goes up at an angle a little bit. Um, and it was also at this time filled with temples to a plethora of different Greek gods. Um, it was really um, uh, kind of overtaken by Gentile idolatry. Uh, if you if you were to visit Caesarea Philippi in the days of Jesus, it wouldn't feel very Jewish. It would feel very Gentile because there were so many temples uh, to Greek gods in Caesarea Philippi. Um, and see, in fact, if you read Josephus talks about this place and he and he says that Caesarea Philippi was better known in the days of Jesus as Pania, uh, named after the Greek god Pan, who was the god of revelations. Um, he was the son of Hermes, which was a messenger of Zeus. Um, in Revelations, type of type of delivery of messages from the gods. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. But it is here at this at this location that Jesus chooses to ask his disciples one of the most important questions in all of scriptures. 
Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, before he asks the question, who do you say that I am? He leads off with the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is Jesus leading with this question actually represents a realistic journey of any human being. Um, first, we gather information about Christ. We receive teachings from different sources about Christ. Different people say different things about him. Some people believe that he's God, the Messiah. Other people dismiss him as simply a legend who isn't even a historical figure. He's just a story that was made up. Um, there are a great amount of opinions out there about who Jesus is. And, you know, we can see by the response of the disciples, some of these opinions. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Come back, you know, the spirit of John the Baptist after he had been beheaded. Others say you were Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. You know, that would you know, signify that, you know, Jeremiah is one of the most important prophets um, or just one of the other prophets. He, you know... And so they're testifying to Jesus all the things they've heard about what the community thinks about Jesus. And we are in a culture where we also hear a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. Um, not just historically, but also like morally, religiously, spiritually. There's a lot of different stories that people tell about why, who people think Jesus is. You know, for you know, for a few examples, Muslims think that he was a holy prophet, but not divine. Jews think that he was either a rabbi that people mistakenly latched onto um, as the Messiah, or he was a false teacher. The Baha'i faith views Jesus as one of many types of God, but not the fullness of God Himself. Buddhists don't really believe any much about Jesus at all. They have no. Uh, they have. They really have no. Um, teaching about him whatsoever. If you ask a Buddhist about who, what they think of Jesus, they won't really give you much of an answer at all. Mormons believe that Jesus was a was the um, a person who became God, just like anybody can, um, and that he was the brother of Satan. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was God's first and best creation. You know, there's a lot of different teachings out there about who Jesus is. The disciples had been exposed to a great many theories about Jesus. Now, the theories that I told you about were not necessarily popular in their day, but they were exposed to a great many other theories about Jesus. Um, and they were able, you know, for instance, you know, this is, like I said, part of all of our journeys, we hear a lot about Jesus, especially if you live a lot out in public society where people don't really have much of an education on who, what the Bible says about Jesus. All sorts of theories out there. All sorts of opinions that people have come to about Jesus. And the disciples, as, long, as well as us, I mean, we have a lot of options as far as what we can believe about Jesus. We can choose. We have the right to choose any, any theories out there that we want about Jesus. You know, we live in America, the freedom of religion. You can be, feel free to choose to believe what, to believe what you want to believe or what you don't want to believe. You know, and our nation has taken that to the extreme. We believe pretty much anything and everything. We must also realize that at this point in Jesus' day, Jesus had never fully, concisely, and pointedly declared who he was. At this point, he's never really come out to the mass society or even his own disciples and said, I'm the Messiah. Believe in me. 
Now, the closest we get is when Jesus was, this is in John 4, I believe, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman at the well says something to the effect of, and Jesus had been talking to her and um, telling her some things that she needs to believe about God, and and uh, the woman actually says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything we need to know. And Jesus said, I am he. I am the one that you're talking about will come. Uh, but he didn't say, his disciples weren't around at that point. Nobody was around except this Samaritan woman. Uh, the disciples had never heard straight from Jesus's mouth, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, come down to save you from your sins and to fulfill all prophecy. Verse 16, well, let's see here. Let's, keep, let's, let's not jump ahead of ourselves. In verse 14, you know, they, they testify to what mass society has said about Jesus. And then Jesus, at the end of verse 15, says, But who do you say that I am? You know, we can talk all day about theories, about Jesus. Sometimes we make the mistake of never really settling in our own minds and in our own heart who we think Jesus is. We sit in church services and we listen to somebody say stuff about Jesus that they think we need to believe. But sometimes we never really get to the point where we decide to believe something about Jesus. So, you know, we, we're really just Christian deists in a sense, where, you know, deism is the idea that God created everything. But since he kind of set everything in motion, he doesn't really have a whole lot of a whole lot of influence on society. We're kind of left to try to just be good people based off of what he's done already. He doesn't really have much of an impact in the world today. You know, somewhat sometimes we can be Christian deists in the sense that we we believe in Jesus, we believe in God, but we kind of are on this on our own, in this thing on our own. God isn't really hasn't really come to us. He's not really involved in our lives. We don't really have much of a concrete belief about who Jesus is. It's just a, a nominal belief or, a, you know, just a theoretical um, understanding of Jesus without ever coming to any concrete, concrete belief ourselves. Peter's response is very important to see. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? which is a question that we need to ask ourselves. Who do you think Jesus is? And Simon Peter in verse 16 replies, very, a very good answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's response is very important to see clearly. And we're going to kind of parse his response a little bit here for a little, but... This is not the same response that many of us are satisfied with when we ask a similar question. For instance, you know, we, sometimes we don't even ask the right questions. You know, let's say you talk to your family about Jesus and you try to converse about Jesus and religion and types of these types, if we dare, <laughs> right? At the Thanksgiving table, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics. But if you dare to talk with people about Jesus, sometimes we never ask the pointed question that Jesus asks, and the response is given are typically not what Peter is saying, because Peter's reply is very specific. And we'll get to that in a second. 
But we have to try better to format our conversation about Jesus more the way Jesus did. Jesus was very pointed. He asked an open-ended question, not a closed-ended question. Some of the questions we asked ask are closed-ended questions. Yes or no? Yes or that? Just get a yes or no response. Like, do you know you're going to heaven? To which somebody might say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And then you kind of leave it at that. You're satisfied. Oh, they must be a Christian. Or, are you a Christian? To which somebody might say, oh, yes, I believe in God. Or I believe in Jesus. And we're satisfied with that. Even though there's not really any information in that response. Or, do you believe in Jesus? And to which an answer might be, yes, I go to church every weekend. Yes, I prayed a prayer at camp when I was a teenager. Yes, I do my best to keep the Ten Commandments. Yes, I follow Jesus, I vote Republican, and I hate abortion. Yes, I grew up with, I grew up with you, I was your friend, and I went to church with you, and I went to church faithfully with my folks. I'm a decent person, and I try not to hurt anybody, and I love everybody. You know, these are some of the responses that we might hear the general public give when asked questions about whether they believe in Jesus. But Jesus did not ask a, a closed-ended yes or no question. He asked a question that required a telling response. Who do you think I am? It's, a very, it's still a very short, succinct question, but it's an open-ended question that really draws out the heart of a person about what they think about Jesus. He asked an open-ended question. You know, for, instance, for example, okay, so sometimes, you remember maybe in your, in your kid's school days, when your kid, kid comes home from school, like Tucker or Riley, did you like school today? No, you didn't like school today. You like school today. You didn't, you did. And then some, love you love school, right? <laughs> Riley, come on, I know you love school. Sort of, a little bit, all right. But that's a yes or no question. There's not really any telling response. There's no information given. I could continue asking questions, which would probably be a good thing for me to do. But the, but the question, do you like school, is a very close-ended question that, that provides no real information. Now, I, or I could say, Tucker, what do you like about school? What do you like about school? I like lunch and math. You like lunch and math. Riley, what do you like about school? Lunch and recess. Lunch and recess. Levi, what do you like about school? Math and lunch. Right, good. Man, math is pretty popular. Kirk, you'd be proud. <laughs> but see, now I asked a question that wasn't any harder to ask, but now I have more information to go off of, right? Um, the first question will not really produce a helpful response, but the second question actually produces something that's kind of helpful that can open more conversation. Asking the question, do you believe in Jesus, will produce... A much more unhelpful response as, who do you think Jesus is? That's the question that Jesus asked. Who do you think that I am? Ask it to yourself. Now, I'm going to give you a second here. I want you to ask the question to yourself. Who do I think Jesus is? Who is Jesus? I don't need you to answer out loud, but I just want you to think about it for a minute while I try to shut up here. <laughs> who do you think Jesus is?
Now, while your wheels were spinning, was the answer that you kind of came up with kind of a theory that you've heard or a conviction that you're sure about? Were you thinking about just, the, well, I kind of think that he was this. I mean, I heard some things about that about Jesus. Or were you, I know who Jesus is. I know who he is because I've read the Bible and I've been informed and I've put my faith and trust in him. You have a, a sure conviction about who Jesus is, or is it kind of a dilly-dally, I don't know, I just kind of go to church thing and fulfill my desire to be good. Try to do my best like a deist. I try to do my best to do my best. And then I just kind of, I know Jesus was alive, I just don't know a whole lot about him. We need to come to a confident conviction about who Jesus is. Romans chapter 10 is the, the, the passage that <clears throat> we read just a couple minutes ago. And I just want to walk through this for a second here. Because some people misuse a verse in here. Um, a ver- you know, Romans chapter 10 verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is a very simple verse. And I'm not trying to say that salvation is super duper complicated. I'm not saying that either. But I think we misuse verses like this. And I want to show you why I think we misuse verses like this by reading a little bit through this passage. Starting in verse 2, I bear, For I bear them witness that they, talking about the Jews who reject Christ, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they, want to, they know they want to follow God, but they don't really know how. Verse 3, For being ignorant... Of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, talking about submitting to God's righteousness, what he is saying in a roundabout way is saying, putting true faith in the righteousness that Christ has established for us. So if we don't know anything about the atonement of Jesus and the righteousness that we can have, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done, Well, there's ignorance there, and they can't truly have faith in Jesus, a saving faith in Jesus, unless they've come to knowledge of what exactly it is they're putting their faith in. You don't put your faith in nothing. You know, the whole Christmas thing I brought up before, like the Christmas signs that say believe. Well, believe in what? Believe in faith and all. have faith and things like that. They're all, they sound nice and, and convenient and beautiful in our soul, but what do they mean? If there's no subject attached to it, what are you putting your faith in? No, verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, what that is saying is that if a a person is going to try to establish their own righteousness according to obeying the works of the law, well, then they have to be absolutely perfect according to the law. Otherwise, they're going to be condemned along with the condemnations of the law. So even even if you want to follow all the laws and try to be perfect on your own accord, you have to know all the laws. (laughs) You have to know how to obey all the laws. And you have to know also, man, I already screwed that one up. So I (laughs) I guess this is of no use to me now because I've already brought the condemnation of the law upon me because I've broken it. 
Uh, verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But he's actually quoting a prophet here. Um, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now he's applying a, pro a prophecy from the Old Testament that is saying God has come to you and revealed to you what he expects from you. That's what the prophet was saying when he was quoting this minus the parenthetics. The parenthetics are Paul bringing this concept into the New Testament covenant of Christ by his blood. Okay? Even in the Old Testament, the prophet said, God has already come to you and he has revealed to you what he expects from you and the, the promises of blessing and curses and his love for you. He's already told you all of it. So let's not be ignorant of it. Now he's applying this to the doctrines of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come to you and that he has been prophesied to you. He has been preached to you. You don't have to go and searching for it because he's come to us showing us who he is, what he's done, and what God expects from us according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to know it, we have to learn it. We cannot be ignorant of Christ and say we have saving faith. Because we actually have to know the person that we're putting faith into. Because what if you learn something about Jesus that you just don't approve of? But all your life, you've been saying you have faith in Jesus, but then you come to this knowledge of something that the Bible says that, like, man, I don't, I don't think that's right. But the Bible says it. I mean, that's what the Bible says about Jesus. Then you kind of learn that you've been believing a sham your whole life because you don't like that thing about Jesus because you were ignorant of Jesus. You didn't know him. You didn't even you didn't know anything that the Bible said about him. You just you know, going along with the cultural Christian thing. Continue. Because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so now he's giving you information. What do I need to believe? Well, Jesus, you need to believe that Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign. He is the king. You have to, he, has, he is the king of a kingdom. In order to be saved, you have to believe that. Some, that's one of the things that most, most people in the world are not satisfied with. We don't want to have a king. We just want some, we want to be king of our own lives, go our own directions, fulfill our own dreams and destiny, and have a God who kind of comes along with us and blessing us along the way. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is Lord, and you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. He died, he was buried, and God approved of his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And so he is still, we're not deists, God is not separate from our lives. God, since Jesus is alive, that means he still has a part in every generation. Every generation. We're not doing this without him. He is always there with us. And it says in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there's belief and confession associated with salvation. And this is what Jesus has prompted Peter to do. To confess his belief in Jesus. To say it out loud. To profess it. 
For the Scripture says in verse 11, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can have a confident expectation that God will fulfill His promise. We will not be put to shame. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. We have nothing to be ashamed of in Christ. But we won't know that unless we know the Christ that we're putting our faith in. If we are ashamed in front of our family or our friends because of Jesus, it's because we don't really have a confident conviction about who Jesus is. We're still in willy-nilly land. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great precious promises, but again, this is all in context of who are we actually putting our faith in? Now, continuing that same line of thought, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, has, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the whole concept here is people can't truly put their faith in Jesus unless they know this Jesus. They've learned of this Jesus. They're not ignorant of him. It's not just, I mean, that's why like if a, if a person is just hearing about Jesus for the first time, that's not really a good time to try to pull a confession because they don't know anything about Jesus yet. They don't know who they're putting their faith in. They still need to learn who he is. The Berean church, when Paul went to them and preached the gospel of Christ, they were constantly searching things out that he was saying to see if they were true or not. Because they wanted to know this Jesus and they wanted to know beforehand who, were they, who they were putting their faith in before they just, all right, whatever, I'll believe whatever you say. They need to know who this Jesus was. We need to know this Jesus before we try to put this faith in him because, well, maybe we're afraid of hell and we don't want to go to hell, so I'll do whatever it takes. Oh, you want me to believe in Jesus? Okay, I believe in Jesus. I don't even know what that means. What am I believing about Jesus and how in the world is that saving we don't know any of that stuff because we've not been patient to learn it. Some of us have a faith that is ignorant and therefore it's not really faith. Because as Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So even though there's an expectation in our faith of something that we haven't seen yet, yet there's still a confidence in it. Some of us don't have the confidence in Christ. We're Hoping without confidence, where true faith is a hope that is established in confidence because we know who Jesus is. We know who the God of all these promises is. A true faith is not just an abstract, arbitrary belief in God mingled with some gangly efforts to do good. Saving faith is not taking a convenient cultural version of Christianity that has surrounded you your whole life and applying that to your general understanding that there is a God out there somewhere. Some people are Christians because that is the only thing they've ever known. They've never really knew anything, any other options. You know, just like Jesus was asking, who do other people say that I am? It's good for us to know the options so that when we choose the Jesus of the scriptures, that faith is sincere 
not just the only option you've ever known. We see this clearly in the rate by which children who are raised in church fall away once they go to college. Since 1995, churches have been exploding with vibrantly active youth groups. But still, even since then, since there's been this boom in youth group activity since the, since the mid-90s, 75% of teenagers leave the faith soon after they leave high school, whether they go to college or not. Why? Because teens are led into an empty faith that comes with zero conviction. Because there was never, they were never giving any foundation in the scriptures. They get involved in the activities and the excitement and the games. And there's teaching along with that. But some of the, we have to be careful about what we're teaching. Are we teaching people how to be good? Or are we teaching people about Christ? Giving people an, an, uh, an education so that they're not ignorant about what they're putting their faith in. But the, the reason why 75% of these kids are leaving the faith after they leave home is because really, even though they may have grown up for years, they've never really come to actually know who this Jesus is that they're trying to put their faith in. They're supposed to be putting their faith in. They have no foundation. There's no conviction. There's no confidence in any of it. They've just been going along with what they've been around. This is what Romans 10 is trying to communicate, that a true confession of Christ is founded upon the biblical portrayal of Christ. So therefore, we need to portray Christ according to the scriptures and not according to the culture. Therefore, a person cannot truly have a faith in Jesus who they don't know anything about. Peter's response is profoundly simple, but profoundly meaningful. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not stating one of Jesus' names here. For instance, you know, we think Jesus Christ, Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. You know, but has anybody ever come to you and said, you know, you are the Cochran. <laughs> you know, you are the Schultz. Well, you call, you call him Schultz sometimes. <laughs> But no, he's not saying you are, he's not just using one of his names, he's using a designation for Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his position according to biblical prophecy. We have to realize that the only people who really knew anything about Christ were people who were educated according to the scriptures. Because Christ is the New Testament word for Messiah. Christ is the New Testament word for Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek in language. So the only reason why Peter would confess, you are the Christ, is if he had some sort of biblical knowledge of who Messiah was or was supposed to be. That's how he could put his faith in Jesus, because he knew what the Bible said about Messiah. Deuteronomy 18.15. We're going to look at some of these passages. There's so many of these passages that we could look at that, des that describe the Messiah as taught in the Old Testament. But let's suffice it for just a few of these passages for now. Deuteronomy 18.15. And this is actually the passage that was cited by the Samaritan woman at the well. And when the Bible talks about how Moses, Moses taught about Jesus, this is the passage. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. Now that's what the Samaritan woman was saying when she said, when the Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. 
He's, she's quoting the prophecy from Moses that says, there's going to be another prophet come up who's going to tell you everything that you need to know. That's talking about Jesus. <clears throat> and that's who the Samaritan woman was looking for. And that's, who she, and that's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus says, well, I'm that person that Moses was talking about and prophesying about. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 say, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. This is what the Jews were looking for in the Messiah, someone who would establish an eternal kingdom. We can read Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12.10, Isaiah 61.1 and 2. Um, but let's look at Jeremiah 23.5. Since the people were saying that he was Jeremiah, it makes sense to see what did Jeremiah say about the Messiah. Jeremiah 23.5-8 says, and if you don't want to turn it there yourself, you don't need to. I'm just going to, there's a few of these I need to get through here. I want to get through because they're amazing. Um, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king, and deal wisely, and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness, which we saw in Romans chapter um, 10. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. And then they shall dwell in their own land. To make a long story short, this is a, one of the most profound um, prophecies in all of Scripture because it is declaring that a new covenant is coming. Because the old covenant was tied to... Um, verse 7, when God redeemed the people, took them out of slavery in Egypt. That's when the Old Covenant was established, the Mosaic Covenant. But he's saying there will be a day when you're no longer going to look to that covenant, but the day will come when you will look to something else to find your security in the righteousness of God. As the... Um, in, in, uh, da, 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 da. He says, "You will no longer de- you will no longer look to look to Egypt and everything that happened around the Exodus. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offsprings out of the of the house of Israel, out of the north country, and out of all the countries where He had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land." That's talking about right now. All the people are in bondage. All the people are in, enslaved. And He's saying that there will be a day when a new covenant is established, a new exodus is established, establishing a new covenant for the people of God that you will look to. Now that is all that is um, that is secured by Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. I'm just going to read these. Please just listen along. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. 
This is also what Romans 10 quoted. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, each, and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So they're looking forward to a new covenant. They're no longer... This is, this is what the Pharisees got hung up on. They didn't want to let go of the Mosaic Covenant. Even though Jeremiah prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he'll bring a new covenant with him. So the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were going to have to let go of the Old Covenant at some point. But they didn't want to because that's where they gained their control. But Jeremiah is testifying that you Jews who are living under the Mosaic Covenant, you're looking forward to a day when a new covenant will be established that will actually be able to save you from your sins and to grant you eternal forgiveness. That's what we see in Jesus. That's what Peter was looking for. Uh, Psalm 2 declares that Jesus himself is the Son of God. Exodus chapter 3, uh, this is the last one that I'm going to reveal or read to you. Exodus chapter 3, because this is a story that we know very well, but perhaps we don't see all the implications here. Exodus chapter, and this is going along with what, what Peter says, you are the son of the living God. Why did he say the living God? Why, what, what was his mind informed of that caused him to say living God? Right. So this is Exodus 3, 13 through 17. It says, this is the encounter with the burning bush before the Exodus happened. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask of me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say, to this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am able, I, I, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and, have, and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. What he's saying, when he says, I am, that means that he can never be past tense. He is never the I was. I am the ever-present, ever-living one. I'm the God of your forefathers. I was with them, and I'm here with you today. I am the living God. I will never die. I will never leave. I will never perish. I will never pass out of existence. I am the living God who always is, always was, is, and will be. The everlasting God. And this is what Peter is declaring in Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> and Peter's understanding of messianic pro- prophecy was not perfect, and we see that in the next passage um, down the road, starting in verse 21. Um, but we're not going to get to that today. But his understanding of Jesus was informed. It wasn't perfect, but it was informed. He knew who Jesus was, according to the Scriptures. And we see that according to his response, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was, it was a short statement, but it was jam-packed, filled with messianic understanding. Jesus' response to Peter reveals his approval of Peter's confession. And look at that in verse, in verse uh, 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, 
Simon Bar-Jonah. Stop there for a second. Blessed are you. Blessing, you know, this blessing that he is saying that Peter is, is saying that he has received this. And he, when we are blessed, we are blessed by someone. We aren't just living in an ever everlasting position of blessedness. We are blessed by someone. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. John 6, John 6, 44 and 45 declares something that one, this is one thing that people just, that turns people away from Jesus. People don't like this because it doesn't allow us to be sovereign over our own lives. John 6, 44 says, no one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the, in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. See all this talk about education, learning, not being ignorant? In verses 60 to 65, say, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That's also a verse that people don't like because we want to help God. Give ourselves a little bit of control and and liberty of our own making. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who who, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we see here, just as Jesus was saying to Peter, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you about me. The Father in heaven has opened your eyes so that you may see Christ and be educated about Christ so that you might actually put your faith in Christ. And we saw in John chapter 6 that that only comes from the Spirit by the command of the Father. That's not something of our own making. You cannot force yourself into faith. We cannot force somebody into faith. The only way, as we saw, faith comes by hearing and the hearing of the Word of God. The only thing we can do is receive. The only thing we can do in regards to our own faith is learn, is see Jesus, is open up, the, is open up our Scriptures, learn of Jesus, and pray to God that He will open our eyes that we might see it. And then he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We remember the context here. Mount Hermon is in view when he is teaching this, teaching, having, holding this conversation. And Peter, Peter Petros, his name means rock, petrified wood, wood that turns into rock. Peter means rock, and he says, I tell you, in, verse eight, in Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's saying, Peter, your name means rock, and you're saying something that is going to be foundational for faith from here on out. What you have said, Peter, is the foundation of faith. This is what my church is going to be built on. This is going to be the the starting point for the followers of Christ, knowing who Jesus is. Now, this is one of the very few times that, the, I think there may be two times, when the word church comes into view in Jesus' Gospels. And we see church, the word come, more, come about more in the epistles, 
But Jesus only uses it a couple times. And it's funny because we think, well, church is a New Testament thing after Christ died, but Christ is already talking about the church. So therefore, the people must have had some sort of understanding of church. The ch word church comes from the word ecclesia. It's not, and one fun fact about this word ecclesia is that in the scriptures, it's never, not a single time, is it used to refer to a building. Not a single time. It's never used to refer to a building. It's used in relation to believers worldwide, regional believers, local believers in a town, or a small group who are simply assembled for worship. It is never used in response, in re reference to a building. Nobody in the scriptures say, let's go to church. It's always, we are the church. Christ died for the church. Christ doesn't die for bricks and mortar. Christ died for the church, which is a body of believers. You can, I mean, that's something you can go home and look at yourself. Look at all the times that church is mentioned in the New Testament. Not once does it refer to a physical building. But that's the only, re that's the only way most of us use the word church today. Let's go to church. <laughs> Let's meet at the church. That, nobody ever says, well, I just love my church in the sense that, you know, I love instead, like, it's always in relation to a building where we all meet. But that's not how the scriptures use the word church. Church is always a people, never a building. But that's kind of a side note. Most more importantly, Christ is declaring that Peter's confession will be the foundation that unites his people and his followers and whom God would put his spirit. Next week, we're going to deal with verse 19. This is a big can to open up. Um, and we'll deal with that next week, talking about church authority and those types of things. And this is a passage that a lot of people run with in a bad direction. We need to look at what the scriptures say about church authority and form our conclusions based off of that. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, but verse 20, I want to focus on this today because... Verse 19, we'll deal with next week. Verse 20, at this point, he says he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ because right now he's pointedly telling his disciples, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, come to be the Savior of the world and fulfill all prophecy. This is where he tells his disciples that in response to questioning. But then he tells his disciples, don't tell anybody what you've learned today. It was not the apostles, the disciples' job to proclaim him right now. That time would come, but Jesus was set on fulfilling all prophecy prior to people widespread declaring who Jesus was. First, he was going to fulfill it all, and that's Isaiah 53. Go home and read that. Amazing. That's one thing that he had not fulfilled yet, dying, suffering, rising from the dead, saving from sins. He hasn't done that yet. He was going to fulfill all prophecy prior to giving the apostles the job of declaring it all. To give them something to actually educate the world on, rather than just tossing out another theory about Jesus. Because as we've been learning today, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Jesus was going to fulfill the word of God, so that when the apostles went to declare, they had a foundation to declare so that the people were no longer believing in a theory, but they're believing in the truth. So much more we could talk about today. This is just a passage jam-packed with truth. But I want to just leave you with this, with the question that Jesus asked. Who do people say that I am? 
Do you even know what the options are out there that society has given? And two, who do you say that Jesus is? That's what Jesus asked the disciples point blank. Who do you say that I am? Who do you believe Jesus to be? If you fumble through the mental library without coming to a sure conclusion, well, maybe that's a sign that you really need to devote yourself to learning about this Jesus and what the scriptures say about this Jesus so that you actually know the one that you're, putting your, that you're supposedly putting your faith in. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God says a lot about Jesus. I mean, pretty much every page is devoted in some way, shape, or form to Jesus. So let's devote ourselves together to learning. And that's one thing that I love about our church here, is it's filled with people who can teach. Because we've been around this, we've been learning this for a very long time. And that's something that not everybody has I've known a lot of different people throughout my life that go to a lot of different churches and types of churches. And we are, we are blessed here because we know what the Bible says, most of us. Not all of us do. I mean, we all, and we all, even those of us who are confident according to the knowledge of scriptures, we still have a lot to learn because this is an everlasting book, an eternal book filled with wonder that we can never stop learning. But let's step back for a minute. This week, ask yourself this question every day. Who is Jesus? Who do I say Jesus is? Let's declare it every single day this week. Let's not declare what we want from Jesus. Let's declare who Jesus is. Who is this one that we're putting our faith in? Lord, I just pray that you'd help some of this to drive home with us. There's a lot of, so much that I just kind of shotgunned out there. I I just pray, Lord, that some of it would just settle into our hearts, not for death, but for life. That you might be glorified through your Son. In Jesus' name.